0: Hello, St. Andrews, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, the word of our king, uh, the word of uh, a king who loves us, whose mercy is new every morning. And we pray this morning as we open your word in Daniel again that you would show us again your very good rule, that we would trust you and that we would follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, please have have open uh, Daniel chapter six as we continue our journey through this letter. Daniel chapter six, and I start with this quote: "History is written by the winners." History is written by the winners. It's a quote uh, attributed to Winston Churchill, but there's some debate as to uh, who first wrote that quote, which is somewhat ironic, really. History. Is written by the winners and I think it's an apt quote for this book of Daniel uh, a book all about the ebb and flow of different kingdoms of winners and losers Daniel declares though in the midst of all of that the reality that at the heart of this universe as kingdoms rise and fall that heaven wins that God is king that he has established a kingdom on the earth through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ our King and he will reign forever That's the news of Daniel, as it is the news of all the scriptures. And Daniel declares uh, that that is the news of history. Heaven wins. That is the shape uh, of all history, that reality. But there are two problems with that account of history, as we've seen as we've gone through this book. Firstly, the problem that we began to deal with last week, and that is, is Daniel in fact real history? As it claims that heaven rules, that God is king, is it accounting for real history? or is it just how God's people imagine or want things to be that's the accusation of some historians as they read the details of the kingdoms uh, given here in uh, the book of Daniel is this actual history or some sort of work of historical fiction but what we are seeing as we go through this book is that Daniel does indeed stand up to scrutiny and we saw that in Daniel chapter 5 with the figure of Belshazzar if you weren't with us as we looked at that i commend that to you but again we see uh, both the challenge that this book faces and its vindication here in daniel chapter 6. look with me at the end of daniel 5 and you'll see what i mean as as babylon falls as the end of the babylonian empire comes we're told that it is taken over by darius the mede he is the one on the throne as the medo-persian empire takes over and in Daniel 6, as the, the account goes on, it is Darius who, uh, who, who is in, in power in the Medo-Persian Empire. But there's our problem. All the historical sources say that a man by the name of Cyrus was king of the Medo-Persian Empire as it conquered Babylon, uh, with no mention of Darius the Mede at all. And so again, we're left with the same problem we saw last week with Belshazzar, who is Darius, and has the Bible got it wrong here? The conclusion is that by some historians, maybe the Bible is unreliable and just wrong history, but again, it is not so. Uh, the reality is that before the conquest of Babylon, the Medo-Persian people merged, into, merged their kingdoms, the Medo kingdom, the Persian kingdom, into one, if you like, superpower, the Medo-Persian Empire. And from that, a king was appointed. Uh, that king was Cyrus, who himself was of Medo background. And as he, as he took to the throne of the Medo-Persian Empire, he was given a name uh, as the ruler, a new name as the ruler, and that name was Cyrus. It's a bit like uh, in England when the different kings and queens come into power. Often they adopt a name uh, for that king—a series of King Henrys, King James, th- this sort of thing. And even we saw it actually at the start of the book with figures like uh, Daniel, who, as he came under the power of Babylon, was given a new name. And the same is true for uh, Cyrus. He is given the name Cyrus as he takes the throne. The question is, what was his name before he assumed the throne of the empire? Well, if you look at chapter 6, verse 28, you see it there. there. If you look down at the bottom of uh, the page, at the footnote for chapter 6, verse 28, you'll see it there. He is Darius, that is Cyrus. That was his name before he took the throne. Darius the Mede, that is Cyrus, the ruler of the Persian Empire. And so again, as we read Daniel, we must not think for a moment that we are reading some sort of historical fiction. This is real history of real people before the real and living God. That is what is before us. But that brings us to our second problem because this book also claims that in the real world, in real history, God is king, that heaven rules. But much of our experience of history denies that reality, doesn't it? That's the problem that this book addresses. How can you live as one who knows that God is king in a world that denies that and in a world where we experience much that would say that pretty much everything else is on the throne but God? Uh, It was true of Babylon. It's now true of this new empire, the Persian Empire, a place of human self-rule, a place where human power writes history and human power writes the laws by which uh, we live by. What is it like to hold on to faith in God as king in such a place? Well, that's what we've seen as we've gone through, and Daniel 6 adds to the answer really helpfully as we watch the latest human victor, Cyrus, or Darius, um, strut about the stage of human history as if he's in control of this moment. And we'll see three things, essentially, in this chapter. We'll see uh, Darius, that is Cyrus, establish a rule that no one is allowed to break. We see that in 6 verse 8. But then we'll watch as God's man Daniel breaks the rule that no one is to break. And then we will watch most wonderfully God overturn the rule that supposedly no one could break. And so let's look at each of those in turn. Versely, firstly, verses 1 to 9, the law the king made, King Darius. And In the early days of his reign, uh, he tried to decentralize the uh, the, the, the Positions of power, a whole bunch of different officials were formed, and Daniel was one of them, aged 80, still prominent. In fact, so prominent, we're told in the early verses of the chapter, that he was set to be appointed the prime minister of the entire kingdom, basically second in charge. And it's no surprise that he rises again to this prominence if you look at the description given of Daniel in verse 4. He was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent he is a brilliant at what he does Uh, and I think in this we have in Daniel a model of what it looks like to live as a godly person in a godless city Uh, firstly a model of that for us as we seek to live in a city like the city of Sydney which again is a city of human self-rule that has no need of want of God how do you live in a city like that? Well, Daniel gives us that picture. Be trustworthy, be neither corrupt nor negligent as you work in the city. And it's interesting that this picture is picked up in the New Testament idea of what it means to be a godly worker. We are to work at it with all our heart as though working for the Lord, who we know is king. We are to honour him by working hard in the city. Now, uh, Jeremiah 29, verse 7 says, Speaking of this time when Daniel lives, the goal of those who were in exile was to seek the good of the city they were in, even though they knew they weren't at home, to seek the good of the city. And that's what Daniel does here. And so we have much to learn from that example. But, but also this, uh, as we go along in Daniel 6, he also provides a model of what you should expect if you live a godly life in a godless city, and that is persecution. 2 Timothy 3 verse 12 says, Anyone who wants to lead a godly life in a city like this will, should expect persecution. And that's what happens to Daniel. Even though he rises to this prominence, he is hated by the other court officials. Uh, a number of reasons seem to be given. Firstly, he's good at his job. There's just the classic jealousy that happens in any workplace. Uh, secondly, he's a foreigner. He's not really one of them and thirdly and this is probably the primary reason it was because his primary loyalty was to god daniel was not just a good man he was god's man and in a godless organization that was hated that's what we see here and so we see that the other officials search to find something to bring him down. They search his public life. Is there some scandal, some corruption, some negligence, some lack of trustworthiness? But there's nothing. They can't find anything, as we see in verse 4. So instead, they aim to find a conflict of interest. They play off his loyalties against each other. They know his primary loyalty is to God as king rather than to Darius, and they're going to play that off each other. And so they go to the king with a plan. You see there verse 7? They say, we've all agreed, that's all the officials, we've all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being in the next 30 days, except you, your majesty, they should be thrown into the lion's den. That's the law you should uh, put into place, Darius. Now, a couple of comments on the proposal. Firstly, it's a straight-out lie. They say, we all agree. Now, the second in power, Daniel, has not been part of this uh, law proposal, So don't not all agree. He's been left out of it deliberately. But then there's also this, the intention of the law, which is to to remove and destroy Daniel. That's not expressed at all, is it? On the surface, it's all about securing unity. We want them all to be about you, Darius. But below that, the, the exact opposite is planned. It's about removing and damaging Daniel. And I am struck in that by the echo it has in our own culture, how often in a godless Uh, city like our own laws purported to promote unity amongst the community have an underbelly sometimes designed to marginalize and even damage the influence of God and his people what if it's uh, something you've been struck by and so verse 8 having come up with the plan they persuade Darius to enact it into a law now the law of the Medes and the Persians was uh, you couldn't erase it once it was there the law was permanently in place And so what will Daniel do here is an unbreakable law and by verse 10 we get his response and so we move to this next section the law that God's man breaks what is his response learning of the decree well it's simple he goes home he looks towards Jerusalem he gets down on his knees and he prays as he has before I mean consider in this response what his prayer tells us about what it looks like to trust god as king Uh, firstly the very last phrase of his response uh, i think is the most striking as he's done before that's really helpful isn't it this isn't some sudden overt political play by daniel that suddenly he starts praying to really make the point that he's different Uh, That's often the temptation, I think, when when a government makes laws or, or comes up with plans that undermine God's people and God's ways, that we suddenly then swing into action as if now's the moment for protest and stride and action. But the truth is, this is coming on Daniel because it's what he always does. The persecution that he will face is about his faithfulness, not his fractiousness in the city. I mean, think about your own experience. How do you express that God is king in the way you live, in your workplace, in your family, in this city? How do you express that? Is it obvious to those around you? Is it consistent? Is it so consistent that if a law came in that countered the very heart of your faith and your faithfulness to God, it would be obvious that you were countering that law? Would it be obvious? You see, our goal is not fractious faith in this city. But nor is our goal to have such compromised faith or hidden faith that if such laws came in, it would affect us very little. So there's the first thing to notice about the prayer. Here's the second thing to notice uh, the position of it. He's on his knees. Here is a man of incredible power by this stage in the empire, he's a prime minister. He's used to being in power and in control, but when it comes before the king of all, any pride or any pretensions at power are left at the door, and he simply bows the knees and begs for mercy, as he did, as we've seen throughout this book. And not only the position, here's another thing to notice about the prayer. Do you see the direction of the prayer? It's towards Jerusalem. That's fascinating, isn't it? Uh, later in Daniel in, in Daniel chapter 9 he's going to pray and plead again for God's mercy and, and really what he's pleading for mercy about is he's asking God to deliver on his promise that his city will never fall that God will reign as king forever and that he will take them out of exile and back home again he wants that that's what he's praying as he sits n- kneels at the window here in Daniel 6 he's praying your kingdom come and what's fascinating is that, that, that reference in Jeremiah 29, verse 7, that as exiles in this world, longing for our, our real home in heaven with God, we're meant to do good to the city. Do you know the ultimate good we could do? The ultimate good is to pray, God, your kingdom come. Come, take us home. <laughs> and how easy it would have been for Daniel as he prays to not do that to lay low at just 30 days. He's an old man. He's in a position of authority. Think of the influence he could have if he just, just dodges this bullet and then goes on after 30 days. But prayer is the bottom line for him. It is the lifeblood of his faithfulness, his relationship to God, and he will not be moved on it. And so back to our story. The court officials head to Daniel's house and they catch him at prayer. That's not a surprise because it's as he's always doing. And excitedly, they rush back to Darius to share the good news. And they highlight nothing about the fact that Daniel is the prime minister. That, that's not mentioned. It's that he's an exile and he's not just ignoring the law, he's ignoring you. This is, this is a, an affront to you, Darius. The king is desperate at this point. Desperate to rescue Daniel, his best man. <laughs> but he's powerless. For all his might, as the the ruler of the Medo-Persian Empire, for all his might of being able to enact laws that no one can break, now he is hoisted by that own law. He, he, He can do nothing. His best man is going to die at the hands of the law that he came up with. And so in the midst of this, Daniel remains constant as they lead him into the lion's den. He neither flaunts his independence, nor shrinks back from his faith in this moment. And as to the outcome, well, he just leaves that to God, who he trusts is king. And so we've seen the law the king made. We've seen the law that God's man breaks. And now finally, we see God's response. We see the law that the king overturns. Uh, verses 19 onwards. You can imagine it, it can't you? Um, Daniel's been put into the lion's den, and Darius is back in the palace. We're told he can't sleep, can't sleep a wink. Uh, he's lost his best man, unless, of course, Daniel's God can do, as Daniel says, unless Daniel's God really is able to rescue. And so we're told at, at first light, Darius races to the tomb, and he calls out, confessing, uh, really praying to Daniel's God, please be it that your God has rescued you. <laughs> has your God saved you, Daniel? Daniel? He doesn't, I don't know what's in his mind. Does he, does he think there's going to be a response? Is it a desperate plea? But what he gets back is, is wonderful and, well, it's, it's amazing. Yes, is Daniel's answer. Yes, God has rescued me. An angel has shut the mouth of the lions and he comes out untouched, completely untouched by the experience. It's brilliant, isn't it? The immutable law of the Medes and the Persians is blown apart by God's law, God's rule. He has overturned this. Daniel is vindicated, we're told, because he's innocent. He's vindicated because he trusts God as king. And God is vindicated not only by that trust, he is also vindicated by Darius, who honors him at this moment. And so what are we to make of this rescue then? This amazing rescue of God's man. Can can we hold hold on to this same promise can we lay hold of it in in our own experience that if we face persecution in a in a in a city that is opposed to God and opposed to his ways and maybe more opposed to it over time that we if we simply trust God enough that we too will be rescued from any danger well the reality is uh, the answer to that is yes and no Uh, firstly no There is no promise in the scriptures that we will be rescued from suffering. In fact, uh, even in Daniel, as we go later on into this book, we're going to see there is the promise for God's people that they will suffer before God's reign is fully established. In fact, as we've seen in Daniel 6, it's not a lack of faith that causes Daniel to suffer. It is because of his faithfulness that he suffers. Uh, The message of Daniel is not that if times get tough... Trust God, and if you have enough faith, he'll get you out of it. Rather, it is this, given that you will suffer because you trust God, be it known that God too is faithful and trustworthy, and he will never leave you or forsake you. So no, we cannot simply claim that any time we face trouble, he will rescue us and we will not be harmed. But yes, we can trust the promise that he will rescue us, because God indicates that those who trust him uh, will ultimately be vindicated. Now listen to these words from uh, later in Daniel chapter 12. It speaks of a day after a long period of suffering that God's people will have to experience. It says this, There will be a time of distress such as, not has, hap- as, as has not happened before, since the beginning of nations until then. But at that time your people, uh, uh, at, that, at that time your people, everyone, that is everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered multitudes who even are asleep in the dust of the earth in other words even those who have died as a result of this suffering will awake to everlasting life god's promise to rescue is an ultimate promise it is a promise to rescue where no one else can even from death and that is the wonderful hope that looms large as we go into the latter part of the book of daniel it is the hope of the resurrection that starts to shine out here. That is the hope that is shown to us here in this tomb of Daniel chapter 6. Because the way God delivers such a rescue is ultimately through his son, through our King Jesus That's whose shadow looms large in the tomb of Daniel, chapter 6. Consider this, and I've been really helped in in thinking about Daniel 6 by uh, uh, work done by Simon Manchester on this this same chapter. And he shows a whole series of parallels between Daniel and Jesus in this chapter. Uh, Consider them with me. Firstly, both Daniel and Jesus face trumped-up charges by powerful elites around them. Both of them have leaders who try to save them. There's Darius and there's Pilate for Jesus. Both are sentenced to death. Both go into a sealed tomb, never to come out again. Uh, both have angels attend to them into the, in the tomb. Both have supporters run to the tomb at the, the first light of the next day and both come out of the tomb. You see the shadow of Jesus looming large in this chapter, but, but there's one more parallel. Have a look at verse 22. We're told both are innocent before God. And at this point we have a problem. Uh, That's what Daniel says. I came out of the tomb because I was innocent. And here we see the problem with uh, often the take home message of studying the book of Daniel is see Daniel, be like Daniel. Dare to be more like Daniel. And if that's the ultimate message of the book of Daniel, then we've got a real problem. We've hit a dead end because here's, here's what this message would be. If you're like Daniel, you'll come out of the tomb safe. You'll pass through death safely. All you need to do is to be innocent before God and that will be be your experience. Great, good plan, except this. God's word declares to us, as we saw last week with a writing on the wall, that no one is innocent before God, not even one. And here's the startling truth, not even Daniel is ultimately innocent. Yes, he's innocent in this one matter that we see before us in Daniel 6, in that he chose not to break God's law and instead broke... Darius's Lord to stay faithful to to God as king. He was innocent in that. He did not betray his faithfulness to God, but he's not ultimately innocent. In fact, as we go along in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, from his lips will come a prayer of confession of his own sin before God as well as the people's. And he will pray for forgiveness. He's not fully innocent on his own and and that's shown in in really what happens after this uh, miraculous rescue. He does come out of the tomb here but you remember back in chapter 1 verse 21 we were told that he remained until the first year of Darius or Cyrus. In other words, within months of this moment he will be dead. And so what's the point of this testimony? Well, here's the point. It's not dare to be like Daniel. The point is... Daniel moves out of the spotlight and we see behind him where the shadow is pointing to, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's foreshadowing our true hope, our King, Jesus. Here's the gospel. You can't go into the tomb innocent. It's not in us. You won't reach the end of your life innocent on your own. But you can go into the tomb forgiven. I know this is somber stuff to be talking about planning to go into our tombs, but it is also vital stuff. Here's the truth. Do you know what a failed life looks like? A failed life, a life that's missed the point. Uh, It's not a life that's failed to go on enough holidays or have enough worldwide adventures. Uh, It's not a life that has failed to be married or have kids. That's not what ultimate failure looks like. It's not a life that hasn't had accolades or achievements. Uh, These things are nowhere near as tragic as this, reaching the end of your life, not forgiven by the living God before whom you have sinned. The greatest tragedy is to end life unforgiven, to enter the tomb guilty. And the greatest joy in life is to be able to enter the tomb forgiven. That's a well-lived life. Uh, No matter how much the rest of that life is marked by failure, that is success. A life... uh, uh, lived I, is a, a life well lived, is a life where one trusts that God's King can forgive us, trusting that He can bring you safe through the tomb. Why can you trust Him to do that? Well, well, as we finish, consider with me the difference between Daniel and Jesus. We've seen the, the similarities, but, but now that Daniel moves out of the shadow and we see Jesus, see this. Firstly, Jesus was innocent, not in one thing, in everything. His friends declared him innocent. Even his enemies declared him innocent. And God the Father declared him innocent as he raised him from death to say, yes, you can enter the tomb forgiven because he was innocent. Because by faith, his innocence is credited to you. That's what we're told in Romans chapter 4, verse 24. So there's the first difference. Here's the second. Daniel came out of the tomb unscathed, didn't he? And yet Jesus was very much... Uh, scathed he was delivered over to death he really died and in that he faced the full weight of judgment that was due to fall on us John Newton says this when we think about how we would like to die we do not want to die alone friendless shamed afraid and judged imagine that but Jesus did that for us so that you could come out of the tomb go into the tomb forgiven he was innocent and in everything. Unlike Daniel, he, wa- he went properly to death. And thirdly, he didn't. Daniel didn't really rise. He was just pulled up on some sort of rope and pulley system. But Jesus was fully raised from death, lifted out of death by God's mighty spirit and raised to life, we're told, never to die again. Which means all that he did and said is vindicated. All that he did for you, his promise of forgiveness by death on the cross that's vindicated it's true you can go into the tomb forgiven and all that he claimed to be our king and our judge who is coming soon all of that is true the resurrection proves it as i said at the start history is written by the winners and the gospel says that's jesus and because he is here is the news he is able to declare to our world forgiveness is possible resurrection life is possible How can you escape the tomb? By trusting the King who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Let me pray for us. Father God, we praise you that Jesus, our King, has won. So now we know that the saying that is written is true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? Amen.